Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome to Open to Debate. I'm John Donvan. This week we have a debate that steps back, zooms out a little bit, to look at where we as a species are headed. The question we're asking is, will the future be abundant? And despite taking this long view, with all of the current news of war and climate change and AI, this conversation has a lot of resonance right now. I'm handing off the reins for this debate, and trust me, you're in very capable hands, with our guest moderator, Zenya Wicket. Zenya is an expert in international affairs, and that expertise has taken her all over the world, including to the White House and to the State Department, where she led South Asia policy and helped to set up the Department of Homeland Security. These days, she runs her own business. It's called Wicked Advisory, which offers coaching and geopolitical strategy to organizations and to executives. I'm delighted that she was able to join us for this conversation and to have her step in as moderator. So now onto the show. Here is Zenya Wicket. In 2011, the Pew Research Center conducted a study that showed, for the first time, that more Americans thought that their children were going to be worse off than themselves than thought otherwise. That trend has continued. Imprinted in our basic genetic makeup is the commitment to ensure the propagation of the species, and not just its continuation, but in such a way that we are healthier and happier. And it's in this context that I can't think of a more important question to answer than whether the future will be abundant or not. What world are we leaving for our children, for our species? This is not about whether we are optimists or pessimists, nor is it about the political oscillations that consume the papers every day. This is a vital question to answer, one that drives behaviours, our own, that of our businesses, our societies and our governments. So, to talk us through the dynamics and to answer the question of, will the future be abundant, we have two Peters. Let's get into it and meet our debaters. Arguing yes, the future will be abundant, Peter Diamandis, founder and executive chairman of XPRIZE Foundation and author of Abundance, The Future is Better Than You Think and the future is faster than you think. Welcome, Peter. A pleasure, Zinia. Good to be here. And arguing no to the question, will the future be abundant, is geopolitical strategist and author of The End of the World is Just the Beginning, Peter Zihan. Welcome, Peter. Great to be here. Now, because we have two Peters debating with us today, I'm going to be referring to each of you as Peter D and Peter Z to try and minimize some confusion. Before we get started, I just want to take a quick sense of what motivates you both to make this argument. So I'm going to ask you each to take 30 seconds and tell us why you're here today. Peter D., what are the stakes for you in this argument? Uh, an individual's mindset is probably the single most important tool they have to solving problems and creating a better world. And our, uh, our inherent mindset that we evolved over 100,000 years is one of uh, fear and scarcity. Uh, but that doesn't put you in a very good position to solve problems. 
And so my mission here is to give people a clear understanding of why the future is extraordinarily abundant and why they're more empowered than ever before to create that future. Phenomenal. It's about mindset. And Peter Z, the same question for you. Why did you show up? We've been living through one of the most atypical periods in human history, and a lot of us have drawn linear forecasts as to where that takes us. We're entering a period of extreme change, and my goal is to get people to understand the the size of the icebergs ahead of us and where they are so we can navigate around them. The future isn't necessarily dark, but that doesn't mean it's going to be anything we can predict. Okay, let's get to our opening statements. We want each of you to take a few minutes to explain your position. Peter D., you're up first, and you're arguing yes to the question, will the future be abundant? Tell us why. Exponential technologies, and I define those as computation, sensors, networks, AI, robotics, 3D printing, AR, VR, blockchain, biotech, are technologies that are making those things that used to be scarce more and more abundant. Um, and so we're living in a world where Technology is transforming scarcity into abundance at an extraordinary rate. You know, everything that we used to view as scarce, access to food, water, energy, healthcare, education, is uh, blossoming. Now, to be clear, we are living during a time that is chaotic and unpredictable and sometimes downright scary. I don't deny that at all. We humans like going to sleep and waking up in the morning, knowing that the world is the same as it was the night before. And it's not. Uh, It's changing at an accelerating rate. Um, And we're not arguing that there are issues. There will be issues, for sure. But even as it's uh, changing at this accelerating rate, what is happening is those things that used to be scarce are becoming abundant. And so, you know, if we look at this and the, you know, I believe what's called data-driven optimism, um, there is a huge amount of data that drives towards this uh, vision that abundance is, in fact, uh, the future. So first of all, global life expectancy has more than doubled over the last uh, 70 years, from roughly 40 years old to now uh, hitting 75. Uh, You know, global child mortality has precipitously dropped from 43% in the 1800s down to under 4% today. Maternal mortality rates, women dying in pregnancy, over the last 20 years alone has dropped 34%, right? Uh, Cancer deaths uh, have reduced by a third over the last 20 years. Uh, You may not believe this, but even democracy uh, has blossomed over the last century. In 1900, about 1% of countries had universal uh, voting rights. Today, it's 96%, right? Uh, Extreme poverty has plummeted Uh, from 95% extreme poverty in the world down to under 10% today. Literacy rates have skyrocketed. Mobile phone uses, you know, we have some 8 billion mobile phones. The poorest on the planet now have the most advanced technology for communications and access to knowledge. Uh, You know, we have 5 billion internet-connected individuals. Access to electricity has exploded. You know, uh, we are, have water safety, Uh, We have more access to food. And so the question is, why is this happening? Why are we seeing this incredible abundance and access that people have? And it's not that we humans have gotten smarter. We don't have better forms of government or better politicians. It is 
the technology. Technology is a resource liberating force. It transforms scarcity into abundance over and over again, right? We used to go kill whales to get whale oil to light our nights. Then we ravaged mountainsides. Then we drilled kilometers under the ground to get access to oil. And now we have 8,000 times more energy hitting the surface of the, uh, of the earth from the sun than we consume as a species in a year. Uh, energy will become squanderable abundance, right? And that tips water and that tips health. And so all of these things are increasing abundance. Uh, I have zero question. Now, to be, and by the way, anybody who wants access to this data, if you go to diamandis.com backslash data, I have 50 charts showing over the last decades and century this increasing access to abundance. So uh, it's not about creating a world of luxury for everybody, but it's about creating a world of possibility for everybody. Peter, thank you so much. And now let's hear from Peter Z. You're answering no to the question, will the future be abundant? Tell us why. Peter D is absolutely correct. The world of the last 75, 80 years has gotten better and better and better and better. But it's important to understand why we've been able to go down this technological path. Uh, we've had three things going on. Uh, first of all, we had globalization. Uh, at the end of World War II, the Americans found themselves facing off against Stalin on the plains of Europe, and it was a war we knew we could not win. We knew we needed tens of millions of people to stand not behind us or with us, but in front of us to serve as cannon fodder. And that meant bribing them. And our bribe was globalization. We used our Navy to open the seas so that anyone could go anywhere and interface with any partner and access any commodity and any product and sell into any market if, in exchange, you would join us against the Soviets. And it worked. And it generated the greatest prosperity and security the world has ever seen. But the Cold War ended in 92. And ever since then, the United States in a series of ever more nationalist political contests has elected the guy who wants to do away with it faster. And the biggest difference between Trump and Biden when it comes to international economics is that Biden was able to hire a grammar checker. Uh, the road hasn't changed. And this is a very strongly bipartisan issue. And we're moving away from the generations of security and economic growth that gave us the ability to go down this technological path. Then there's demographics. Uh, Pre-Stalin, we all lived on farms where kids were free labor, so you'd have as many of them as you could put up with, plus one, because that's how you found out it was too many. But then Stalin brought us globalization and industrialization and urbanization, and all the new industrial jobs were in town, so we moved in to take them. Well, in town, kids aren't free labor. They're just a source of migraines. So you just fast forward 30 years to the 70s to the 90s, and we entered this weird period where we had huge numbers of young workers and huge amounts of consumption because of it, but not a lot of kids that we had to spend money on. It was, demographically speaking, a moment in time. You fast forward another 20 years to the 2000s and the 2010s, and we now have lots of mature workers who are over 40 but not yet retired. People were at the height of their income, but their expenses were under control. So we saw a huge tax base, huge infrastructure spending, lots of production, lots of investment, which generated, among other things, the tech boom that brought us the world we're in now. But this, too, is only a moment in time. And in the 2020s, we're now aging out. 
whether it's Spain or Italy or Germany or Japan or Korea or Taiwan or China or Thailand, this is the end of the road because that bulge now hits mass retirement. And we have to come up with something that works without investment or consumption or production. And we're not going to get that first right on our first try. And then finally, there's China. China is a country that exists because of globalization and demographic change. It's utterly dependent upon globalization for access to raw materials and access to markets. But it's also the fastest urbanizing country in history, which means it's the fastest aging population in history. And they've already aged so quickly and so far that consumption-led growth or cost-competitive production is already faded into memory. Their birth rate fell by more in the last six years than it did among European Jews during the Holocaust. So even repopulation is now statistically impossible. And China will cease to exist as a unified, industrialized political economy within 10 years. Major shifts in economic models take at least a couple of decades, and they are messy. The shift from imperialism to globalization, for example, took the better part of five decades and gave us two world wars and the Great Depression. So no, abundance is not the word that I would use to describe the future. We've passed that already. Okay, thank you both very much. We know where both of you stand and why you stand there. So let's take a quick break and we'll dive into the discussion on the question, will the future be abundant after this? Welcome back to Open to Debate. We're debating the question, will the future be abundant? My name is Zania Wicket, and I run Wicket Advisory, a business that works to bring new perspectives to your thinking, helping you make better decisions. And I'm the guest moderator for today's debate. We just heard opening statements from ex-prize founder Peter Diamandis and geopolitical strategist Peter Zihan. And I want to try and summarize those briefly. Peter D., You argued yes to the question of, will the future be abundant? Your principal points were that exponential technology changes are making scarce things more abundant at an incredible rate. You acknowledge the fact that we're living in a frightening time and that the world is changing at an accelerated rate. But you gave us some statistics that emphasize your optimism. You talked about the doubling of global life expectancy over 40 years, the uh, lowering by a huge factor of child mortality and maternal mortality, the blossoming of democracy. And you asked the question, why is this happening? Uh, And your answer was technology is a resource liberating force and that energy will be a squanderable abundance. Arguing No to the question was Peter Z. And Peter Z, you acknowledged the fact that the world has got better, but you thought it was important to understand why it had gotten better over the last century or so. And you said there were three reasons for that. The first was globalization. The second reason that you put for why things have gotten better are demographics. Uh, You described moments in time where there was abundance of people as in the last 20 years. But you talked about as we move into the 2020s, you've got a population bulb that is hitting mass retirement. And then the third reason you laid out was around China. You described China as a country that will cease to exist 
in a, as a unified industrialized economy in the next decade. You talked about those three factors, globalization, demographics, and China, being on a positive trajectory and now hitting a negative trajectory. So let me pick up and ask you both a few questions. The first question, and this is for both of you, abundant for whom? How do imbalances and inequities factor into your thinking? Does it matter where you sit, what nationality, what country, what ethnic or socioeconomic group? And maybe I'll start with you, Peter D. It matters in the beginning, but it doesn't at the end, right? Uh, in the beginning, when the first mobile phones cost a million dollars in uh, New York, Manhattan for the Wall Street traders, and they worked very poorly, now they're $40 handsets and they're available to billions of people and they work incredibly well. And not only do they work incredibly well on this handset, which every child you know, on the planet has access to comes the world's information, two-way video conferencing for free, libraries of books, entertainment, knowledge, information that were never available to the heads of nations 20 years ago are now available to the poorest. There are 8 billion handsets on the planet. So what we see is technology is a democratizing and demonetizing force. Uh, and so you know, things do begin when they work poorly. They're available to the richest who take the risk. Um, and eventually they rapidly demonetize and democratize and are accessible to everyone. We're seeing this on communications. We're seeing this on energy. And so I believe that this is a force and it's a non-stoppable force, and it is what is causing increasing abundance. A lot of people have described uh, technologies like AI as things that increase inequality. What's your argument to people who say that actually these technologies are increasing inequality rather than decreasing? And then I'll come to you, Peter Z. When you digitize anything in the early days of its growth, it's deceptive. 30 doublings later, it's a billionfold bigger and it's disruptive. And it's dematerializing, demonetizing and democratizing. We've seen this over and over again across every technology. AI is going to be ultimately the best educating system and the best healthcare system will be available to the poorest child and the wealthiest child delivered by AI platforms. Okay, thank you. Peter Z, uh, the question, abundant for whom? Geographic factors and demographic factors are not the same everywhere. Uh, some countries are aging faster than others. Others have better borders and better economic geography. And as a rule, gross oversimplification, the Western Hemisphere looks pretty good, uh, with the United States being one of the youngest demographies in the world, as well as Mexico. That buys us a lot of time to figure out the details. But when it comes to technology at its core, the, the demographic structure is everything. Uh, developing new technologies requires a huge number of people in their 20s and their 30s who are social, who are integrated, who can work as a team and can imagine the future and then figure out how to operationalize it and then figure out how to mass manufacture it. The problem with this process is that every step up until mass manufacture generates no income. And that means you have to have a huge amount of capital to push this whole process forward. Now, in the 2000s and the 2010s, we had exactly that world. We had the millennials, which were many, and we had the boomers who were nearing retirement but had not yet retired. So they had their life accumulation of savings, which pushed down capital costs for everybody. That's one of the reasons why growth these last 25 years has been so robust. Lots of young, smart people, lots of money for them to do things with. Well, that's over. 
As of December of last year, half of the world's baby boomers had already retired and they'd liquidated their savings. And so we've seen capital costs triple. They're going to triple again in the next few years. The oldest millennial, sorry millennials, turns 45 next year. They're no longer the young bucks. And the next generation down is small and to be perfectly blunt, kind of antisocial. So the environment that has allowed us to push the technological envelope so far, so fast, so consistently, it's already behind us. And we're already seeing those adjustments throughout the tech space with layoffs, with shutdowns, with focusing more on manufacturing now rather than idea generation, because we're realizing we're losing China at the same time. So the, the risk here isn't that we're not going to push the envelope forward. I'd say that's almost impossible. The risk here is we're going to lose too much of where we have and we backslide a little bit. And we're going to find out the answer to that question in just the next five years about whether or not we can retool fast enough. North America basically needs to double the size of the industrial plant. And if we fail that, then we lose a lot of what we already have. I can see that Peter D. disagrees. So, Peter D., back I to you. For vehemently disagree. <laughs> yeah, so it is so wrong in my opinion. Um, what's happening is we have more uh, individuals, more empowered with technology than ever before. We have created an interconnected globe where people have gigabit bandwidth anywhere on the planet they now have the ability to use AI to code at a speed like never before. The cost is demonetizing of the ability to innovate and create, right? It used to be that it would cost you $100 million to sequence a genome. It's now down to 200 bucks. Your ability to code used to require a massive amount of education. Now you can uh, code just by you know, explaining through natural language what you want. So the speed of innovation is exploding onto the scene. And the number of individuals who have got access to this technology is greater than any time ever in human history. And entrepreneurs that used to require, you know, 50 or 100 or 200 people to create a company are now creating a company that's delivering a, a valuable asset or resource with two or three people. So I think we're seeing a Cambrian explosion of innovation. Uh, by no means a decrease, and it's going to be accelerating. Tell me what you think the future looks like in, say, 2050, and maybe take an American, a standard American, what do you think life looks like? I think we're going to make it over the hump. I think we're going to succeed in doubling the size of the industrial plant, and I think we're going to make it through to when the millennials' kids enter the market and rebalance our demographics here. I don't think it's going to take till 2050. I think 2040 will be plenty of time, and we will have a system where we are largely immune to international shocks, and we have local workers serving local markets using local resources. And getting there is going to be the fastest economic growth in the history of Canada, Mexico, and the United States. It's not a good story. It's a great story. It's a story of growth. But I wouldn't call it abundant. It will be driven by a breakdown of the old system. Okay. So, Peter Z, 2050 looks good. It's much more localized, but it's an ugly way to get there. Peter D. Uh, so, I'm going I'm to agree with Peter Z on a lot of that. Uh, and I do think 2040, uh, it's hard to predict beyond 2040, honestly. Uh, we're going to be, in the next 20 years, uh, we're going to be adding healthy decades onto the human lifespan. I and mean, that's one of areas that I'm focused on. Um, yeah, fingers crossed. And uh, we're about to launch a massive X Prize in that area. But we're going to add 20 healthy years. Uh, the a study done out of Harvard, London School of Business in Oxford said that for every healthy year, you add 
to the lifespan of humanity. It's worth $38 trillion, the global economy, right? So we have more people living longer, healthier lives. Um, it's positive on both sides of the equation, more empowered than ever before. Uh, we're going to see AI have the most disruptive and most reinventive uh, impact. Um, there are going to be two kinds of companies at the end of this decade, those fully utilizing AI and those out of business. It's going to be that black and white. I want to move on to climate. And Peter D., I want to turn to you first and say, aren't we using up the Earth's resources? Uh, will there ever be a tipping point at which we can't multiply them or become sufficiently efficient or productive to deliver more with less? Is science going to allow this? This idea that we are scarcity bound, again, is built into uh, our old brain that evolved for hundreds of thousands of years. We're living again, in a world where technology liberates resources. So again, we used to kill whales to get whale oil, right? Now we're on the verge of fusion, um, which will give us near infinite energy. We still have an oil economy and we will for the next 20 or 30 years. There's no issue about that. But we're going to be increasing the amount of resources available to us. We fight over water. We, you know, there's 97.5% of the water on the planet is salt. 2% is ice, and we fight over a half a percent of the water on this planet. But we can. there's an abundance-minded way of thinking about it. There's plenty of water. We live on a water planet. It's just not in usable form. That's where technology comes in to capture you know, trillions of tons of water out of the atmosphere. We call it rain uh, or desalinate water out of the oceans. You know, What other resources do we consider scarce? Because I can show you the technologies that can make it abundant. I'll just say for climate real quick, our ability to bring the earth back into balance is something fundamentally critical. And I think I would rather be fighting that battle today with the tech we have versus, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. My concern is that we don't have the tools to deal with it yet. Uh, I think a best example I can give you is what it takes to put up a solar panel. Uh, aluminum is the most energy intensive of the primary industries that we have. If you look at steel and fertilizer and the rest, taking raw silicon and turning it into a finished silicon panel requires seven times the energy that it takes to make the same volume of aluminum. And we're probably going to lose most of our capacity to produce polysilicon at scale when the Chinese break down. So the issue here is ultimately out of timeframes. Uh, how long does it take to build the industrial plant? How long does it take to apply the technology? And the issue that Peter D. and I have always struggled with is whether or not we've already passed the point of no return on these technologies and we no longer need the old system to push it forward, or whether we do need time to move it forward. And I think the best example I can give you there of where we haven't crossed the Rubicon yet is AI. AI chips are all three nanometer or smaller. They all come from the same city in Taiwan, but that makes it sound a lot simpler than it is. There are 9,000 companies that are involved in the manufacturing system to allow those fabrication plants to work. And over half of them only produce one product for one customer, and they have no competition anywhere else in the world. So if you peel out any small section of the global system that's technologically oriented, like, say, Germany, which is in a severe demographic collapse right now, we lose the ability to make those chips at all, or certainly at scale. Now, we can rebuild that ecosystem, but it takes time. So everything that Peter Dede said about productivity, I, I agree. The question is whether that's this decade, the next decade, 
or the decade after. I, I'm going to go back. We've got so much to cover and so little time. So I'm going to ask for quite snappy responses if I can get from you. I want to go back to you, Peter D. There's a war in Ukraine. We've got a growing conflict in the Middle East. Peter Z's already brought up China and his view that China is, uh, my language, not yours, Peter Z, but effectively in decline and over the next decade. We have a vulnerable Taiwan. Um, I haven't even talked about Iran and Russia. Are we on the verge of a great powers war? And does that, how does that, this conflict affect your assessment? There's no question that there's lots of reasons to be scared, concerned, frightful, and so forth. What I draw confidence from is uh, history as well as a projected future. You know, if you ask anybody, uh, you know, would you rather live in the year 1900 or the year 2023? If you truly understood what life was like in 1900, where you were working 80-hour work weeks, your 12-year-old kids were in the factories, you were dead by 40 from tuberculosis, um, you'd have to uh, you'd have to answer, "I'd rather live today." Uh, and so the world has gotten extraordinarily better by almost every measure, not every measure, but by almost every measure over the last 123 years. And over that 123 years, we've also seen World War I, World War II, the Spanish flu, the Vietnam War, 150 million people die needlessly in those conflicts. And yet the world has gotten extraordinarily better. Um, this is not a, a straight and linear path. It has got ups and downs, ups and downs. But what I truly believe is, yes, we're going to have these problems and we're going to overcome them. And the number one way to allow people to become more peaceful um, is to give them access to prosperity. Peter Z, I want to talk to you about population because that's one of the big issues that you've put on the table. Um, Thomas Malthus, back in 1798, predicted that population growth would outstrip food production. Since then, uh, numerous other scientists and experts have said similarly, including most notably uh, Paul Ehrlich and his wife in the population bomb in the late 60s. They've all been wrong. Why is this moment different? Industrialization. Industrialization plus technology introduced us to this very simple concept called synthetic fertilizer, and it was applied at scale. And we were able to put it on geographies that without it could not grow food, things like the Brazilian Cerrado, for example. And that effectively increased the amount of land that we could cultivate by a factor of three. And that's what's kept us all alive. As long as there is no disruption to the synthetic fertilizer supply chain, we're good. China's where the single largest source of phosphate comes from. Belarus and Russia are the single largest source of potash and nitrogen is a natural gas derivative, and we're going to lose access to a lot of that from the Russian space and the Middle East as well. So we're going to have to hack the genome of plants in order to grow more food with less fertilizer. And it is a race against time, whether we can figure out a way to improve yields on the genetic side faster than we lose the ability to produce it on the synthetic fertilizer side. And I do not have enough confidence to tell you how we're going to come down on that race. So time is a big issue here. Peter D., in your 2012 book, Abundance, you quote Matt Ridley that, and I love this, save time is the best definition of prosperity. Yes. You give a whole host of examples of how time has been saved. You've done that today as well. But many would argue today that time is an increasingly rare commodity. Expectations of what we achieve in any 
moment has multiplied many times over. So what do you say to the argument that actually time is shrinking, in fact? Every human on the planet has one thing in common, 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week, and it's how you use that time that differentiates wealth and capabilities. And, you know, Google saved us for going to the libraries. ChatGPT is now giving us increased, you know, so yes, we are resetting our expected performance per unit time and it's exploding onto the world, right? And so our ability to solve problems, to create new products, to, to uh, create additional prosperity is increasing at a exponential rate because of these technologies. Okay, we're gonna to have to wrap up our discussion. When we come back, we'll bring in some more voices to further the conversation around this question. Will the future be abundant? We'll be right back. Welcome back to Open to Debate. I'm Zania Wickett, an executive coach, moderator, and speaker. I'm joined by ex-Prize founder Peter Diamandis and geopolitical strategist Peter Zeehan, who have been debating the question, will the future be abundant? We're going to bring some other voices in, some uh, members of the audience. Up first, we have Alexa Michal of Fortune magazine. Alexa, welcome. What's your question for the debaters? Peter D., I'll start with you. You know, you mentioned that in advances in technology... And research has really expanded, you know, not just lifespan, but health span. And, and we're going to have these 20 extra years. So I kind of want to talk about what those years are really going to look like and what it's going to sort of mean to age in this country, given that this is sort of uncharted territory, especially that I think people would argue that people are also aging into poverty. People are dealing with caregiving duties. And, and so what's that going to, going to look like? It's, uh, it's a challenge, Alexa, because people are probably not saving enough money for those extra years. Uh, the reality is people retire because of one of three reasons. Either they're in pain, uh, they're low on energy, or they're forced to retire. But what happens at 65 or 70, if at the top of your game, you've got all the energy, all the capabilities, everything you've ever had and more, I think it's going to be a boom for global GDP if we allow people to continue working. Um, I think we're gonna enter a new period of life where you're starting your next startup, you're getting your next university degree, uh, you're exploring the world even more. You know, we shut down people's earning capacity at 65. Why? What if they don't have to? I think it's a huge economic uh, window of opportunity uh, that is coming. Peter, if you wanna respond quickly, go ahead. We obviously have to change the political incentives right now, and that requires reform of a lot of programs that encourage people to stop even before 65. And from a medical point of view, the technology to watch is biologics, because if we can figure out a way to make people productive without the mental degradation, that obviously moves the, the metrics on a lot of this. Because if you can do that, we get an extra group of people, roughly 70 million in the United States, who can be part of whatever the future solution and struggles are, as opposed to being part of the problem. And that is one of the very few technologies that I'm like watching very, very closely because it looks like it's right at the cusp and we might be able to tip that into usefulness within the next 24 months. And that's very promising. Pushing hard. Please, please, please continue. Thanks so much, Alexa. Next, I want to invite Diane Francis to our stage. Diane is from the National Post. Diane, what question do you have for the debaters? Well, I, I think this is a marvelous uh, debate. I really am enjoying it. Here's my question. Human nature, malevolent usage, lack of regulation, anti-regulation, ignorance, and algorithms in the form of very dangerous religions and theologies. Tech can't solve that. In fact, could be and is being utilized 
to a bigger and worse extent than before. And I'd like you to comment on that as well. I'll, I'll jump in. And you're absolutely right. There's no question that we're going to see malevolent use of AI. And it's my biggest concern over the next one to five years. I think we're going to see the election be patient zero uh, in this situation. I think uh, on the flip side, what's going on is what I would call loss of privacy uh, is going to be a countervailing force. It's hard to hide things more than ever before. So our, you know, it's going to be a white hat, black hat uh, race in terms of AI being used to help determine uh, malevolent AI's usage. And one question to ask everybody listening is, do you believe that human nature is ultimately good or bad? I believe it is ultimately good. And I believe that an entrepreneur, and this is my mission is to inspire and guide entrepreneurs to create a hopeful, compelling, and abundant future for humanity. That's my massive transformative purpose. I say it every morning. It drives all of my organizations and my companies. Entrepreneurs are individuals who find problems and fix problems. And so, you know, uh, the world's largest problems are the world's biggest business opportunities. So when you see a problem, yeah, it's an entrepreneurial opportunity. And I think we have more positive minded entrepreneurs trying to find and slay and solve problems than any time ever in human history. Peter Z, I think that question was also framed at you, wasn't it, Diane? Sure. Let me give you the bad and then the good. First, the bad. Uh, we've got two major powers, the Russians and the Chinese, who are going to vanish from the world over the course of the next generation or two. The question is whether it happens fast or slow. And when countries feel they're in a corner and they have nothing to lose, the chances of them doing something that they normally wouldn't consider, of course, rises very high. Uh, but let me give you two examples of why I don't think that their decline is going to be catastrophic for the rest of us. In the case of China, they don't command the top technology. They import all the server time, they import all the chips that are necessary for them to access AI at scale. And we're already in the early stages of the Biden administration and whoever follows Biden probably working to build a wall in that space. The Russians, back in 1987, when the KGB realized that the end was nigh, and remember back in the late 80s, the KGB controlled the Politburo, uh, they basically had a meeting where they decided whether or not they wanted to spread nuclear weapons around the world and salt the earth to destroy whatever the West might do next. And they decided the answer was no. Even in the darkest hour for a lot of these countries, the, the desire to end the human condition just doesn't exist. That doesn't mean they date quietly. That doesn't mean there aren't problems. And we are still cleaning up the mess from the Soviet disintegration. But it does mean there are limits. I am far more concerned about powerful individuals that maybe don't have restrictions on their actions than I am about powerful countries that are getting desperate. And that's a different sort of problem. Peter D., I think you've just come up with a great suggestion of another debate, which is, are people inherently good or bad? Um, great question, Diane. Do you have a follow-up? I just, uh, I, I think that putting the hands of increasingly powerful tech into people that may not be good is something that I don't see talked enough about. I just wondered, you know, how optimistic are you, Peter? Because you're, you're my optimist. There are going to be challenges and issues in the near term. Uh, it's the one to five year period that I'm concerned about navigating that um, and getting allowing humanity to uh, to adjust to it. Uh, it is transformative change. And, and I think we humans do not like change. We like waking up in the morning and knowing that the world was the same as it was. We went to sleep no matter what condition we're in. And we are in an accelerating period of change. 
And it is creating more abundance, which is the topic here. I think you can be a little bit more optimistic, Ms. Francis. Um, we have a little bit more time than I think most people think. If we have a problem with the chip production, which I think we're going to, that buys us a few more years right there. And the fact that we're already having these discussions, I mean, think about everything that is going on in the American Congress right now, what a mess it is. They still found a time over the last several weeks to have an open session about the ethics of artificial intelligence. So unlike previous technological revolutions where we come very late to the game, we're discussing this one as it unfolds. Uh, it doesn't mean we're going to get it right on the first try, but we're at least not going into it blind. Thank you so much, Diane, for your questions. Let's bring on Andy Wang. Andy is the host of the podcast called Inspired Money. Andy, welcome. Go ahead with your question. Thank you, Xenia. From an investor's perspective, there are always growth opportunities and at the same time, other areas that are contracting. I'd like to hear from both Peter D. and Peter Z. Given your respective outlooks, what areas might be beneficiaries of major trends over the next couple of decades? Are there companies, sectors, or geographic regions where investors should look for opportunities? So, Andy, um, uh, I'm investing my money, my venture fund's money, uh, my time uh, in two areas, uh, health span, healthcare, biotech. Uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, there's people would give an extraordinary amount of their wealth to add 20 plus healthy years and AI. I think those are the two largest markets on the planet uh, and they're going to transform every single thing that we have and we do. Um, what's on the on the downside? Any company that is not an exponential organization uh, that is born, you know, uh, you know, more than 30 years ago are going to be outcompeted, outthought, and actually massively disrupted what's coming down the pike. I think we need to focus on the scarcity in order to have the opportunity to turn it into abundance. So number one, we need to diversify the semiconductor supply chain for the best chips. Right now, we are incredibly fragile in that, and anything breaks anywhere and the whole thing stops. Building that will take years, but it's certainly within our technical capacity to do it, and the benefits, I agree with Peter D, are so outsized. It's totally worth our time. Uh, second, if... Agriculture goes the way I'm fearing. We need a drastic increase in production. Uh, the two ways to do that, ironically, are both related to AI. One is automating farming to a degree so that each individual plant gets individual attention. That requires AI on the tractor in order to put pesticides, fertilizers, water, whatever it happens to be on a plant-by-plant basis. I call it digital gardening. Uh, and the other aspect is hacking the genome of absolutely everything. Uh, we've been moving in that direction for 30 years. Uh, Ten years ago, corn plants were 13 feet tall. Now they're closer to five, but they generate three times as many kernels as the old system did. We need more of that because if we can't provide broadcast agriculture for a place like Brazil, then places like Illinois need to at least double input uh, to prevent a billion people from starving. Uh, this can probably all be done in less than a decade, but, you know, chop, chop. I, I agree 100% with you, Peter. You know, it is, we're seeing incredible, we're seeing a new species of rice that are able to have multiple crops per planting. And for those who are concerned about GMO, listen, GMO has never killed anybody, but I can guarantee you it saved hundreds of millions of lives. I'm less interested in rice. Um, soy, I think, is the one that's going to be the real game changer because it's a protein plant instead of a starch plant. We also have vertical farming and cultivated meats coming online. The idea that we have to eat food the way it's always been produced, in other words, grow an entire cow to get access to meat, is going to be seen as insane in the future. Why not just grow the protein that you need to make a good burger? 
that that's a full topic for a whole nother debate. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Andy. Really grateful for your question. I've got a question for the two of you, if I may, which is, what's the one argument, and maybe we'll start with Peter Z, what's the one argument from your colleague that you agree or disagree most with and why? Well, you know, we actually don't disagree on what technology can do. We don't disagree really on what the pace of technology can achieve. Our big disagreement is whether the system we're in today is sustainable in the near-term future or not, or if we have to go through a bit of a drop before we start back up. I would argue that demographics very clearly means that we're going to have to take a breather here. I don't see a way around that. I don't see how manufacturing supply chains that allow technology to apply at scale can continue this decade without a massive reorganization. Uh, but on the rest of this, I'm with him. <laughs> and I have to say, I, I agree with much of what Peter Z has said here. Uh, the only thing I would say is it's a linear extrapolation to believe that re-engineering the supply chain will take as long as it has, because we've got we've got capabilities coming from AI that are going to help us much more rapidly re-engineer. We have we even talked about quantum technologies coming down the pike that are going to be impacting material science and biology in an extraordinary fashion. So I think if we were going to try and re-replicate the old school system we, we've developed over the industrial military complex of the last century, yeah, it will take many, many decades. But uh, I think we have shortcuts to be had uh, based upon technology. Having said that, um, yes, there are supply chain issues. We saw that during COVID, which uh, can be put us in a precarious situation. Let me give you an example to show you the promise and the peril. Um, textiles. You know, very unsexy technology it was the root of industrialization over a century ago. The model has always been the same. And up until the 90s in the United States, it was women in Appalachia with snowing machines. Well, then we got NAFTA, and the model moved to Mexico, where the women with the sewing machines were cheaper. And then we had the WTO, where it moved to India and China, where the women with the sewing machines were cheaper. Then we had COVID, and suddenly we didn't have clothes. So some enterprising folks in North Carolina built some facilities that are two acres under one roof that take raw cotton, clean it, turn it into thread, and then yarn, and then cloth, and then clothes. And the end product is cheaper than what you get out of Bangladesh per, per unit. And these places have a staff of two. We had no idea we could do that until we were pushed and we found out we had to. We're going to find things like that as we reindustrialize, but we're not going to know what they are until they happen. You're making the exact point I want to make. A company, Variant 3D, that's here in Malibu is 3D printing clothing at an extraordinary rate and not lights out scenario. And I think this is what entrepreneurs do. They demonetize and democratize. And I think anybody listening to this, you know, there are massive opportunities to get ahead of the curve. Now's the time to bring it home with closing remarks. I'm going to go to you, Peter D. first. You have the floor. Leave us with a reason to believe that yes is the answer to the question, will the future be abundant? Okay. I built an AI model um, called Peterbot. And I'm going to ask Peter Bott to go ahead and uh, respond to Peter Zion. Peter Bott, would you? Peter Zion's assertion that we are returning to a world resembling pre-World War II is overly pessimistic. The world today is vastly different, with exponential technologies driving progress. Let's focus on leveraging these capabilities to create a future that surpasses any previous era. I understand Peter's concerns about a pricier and slower world, 
but I see this as a temporary transition. I believe in the potential of technology to solve global challenges. History shows that advancements have consistently improved our lives. Let's dive into a few concrete examples. One, energy. We're witnessing a global shift towards renewable energy sources like solar and wind, with costs plummeting and installations surging worldwide. Two, transportation. Electric vehicles are gaining traction, with major automakers investing heavily. Additionally, we're seeing advancements in autonomous vehicles, hyperloop technology, and even flying taxis. Three, education. Online learning platforms are democratizing education, allowing people worldwide to access high-quality educational resources. Virtual reality and augmented reality are transforming the learning experience. These examples illustrate how innovation and technology are reshaping various sectors, creating opportunities for positive change and a brighter future. So that's, uh, you can access peterbot.ai if you can ask it questions about, uh, uh, about it, train on my books and my blogs. You know, I believe in data-driven optimism, and the data has been consistent up and to the right uh, for the past century. And technology, which has made that transition, is not slowing down. It's accelerating. Is there danger out there? Uh, of course. Uh, do I believe in entrepreneurs and individuals to find and solve problems more than ever before? And I think they're the only ones who do. So is the world becoming more abundant? Uh, 100%. Uh, it is becoming abundant in terms of access to all the fundamentals. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Peter Bott. Um, and now, Peter Z, you'll have the final word. Your rebuttal, please. Tell us why you answer no to the question, will the future be abundant? We don't have the redundancy yet. We don't have the resiliency yet. And if things go with demographics and China and deglobalization the way I'm anticipating, we don't have that in finance or industrial materials or manufacturing or, above all, agriculture. And until we do, people are going to get left behind at scale. Uh, hopefully, over the next 20 years, we can work out the kinks of this transition and not lose a lot of what we've achieved in the last century. But if you look back on the, the two millennia of history before 1900, that suggests that um, unlocking that potential is a lot more difficult than it seems to us at, at the moment we're in now. Thank you so much. And that concludes our debate. I'd like to thank our debaters, Peter and Peter and Peter Bott, Thank you for both showing up and for approaching this debate with an open mind. We appreciate your bringing thoughtful disagreement to the table and your being open to debate. Thank you to our guests, Alexa Michal, Diane Francis, and Andy Wang for contributing your probing questions. And thank you, the audience, for tuning in to this episode of Open to Debate. As a nonprofit, our work to combat extreme polarization through civil and respectful debate is generously funded by listeners like you, the Rosencrantz Foundation, and supporters of Open to Debate. Open to Debate is also made possible by a generous grant from the Laura and Gary Lauder Venture Philanthropy Fund. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. Claire Connor is CEO. Liam Mathau is our chief content officer. Alexis Pankrazi and Marlette Sandoval are our editorial producers. And Gabriella Mayer is our editorial and research manager. Andrew Lipson is head of production. Max Fulton is our production coordinator. And Damon Whittemore is our engineer. Gabrielle Yanuccelli is our social media and digital platforms coordinator. Raven Baker is events and operations manager. And Rachel Kemp is our chief of staff. 
Our theme music is by Alex Clement. And I'm your host, Xenia Wicket. We'll see you next time.